0: Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. The guard shut the iron door behind me. Howdy folks and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. In this episode, I'm going to sort of freewheel it a little bit and I'm going to tell you a couple of stories. The first one I'm going to tell you is something I mentioned in an earlier episode. I can't recall exactly which one, Um, but I mentioned that our band Cedar Hill from Atlanta opened for the band Fish. And uh, let me just tell you this story. So the typical way Cedar Hill worked is we'd rehearse once a week and uh, money would get doled out from previous gigs. We'd go over the calendar, what was coming up, talk about how do you get there. 'Cause at that point I think we did have MapQuest. It depends on what years you're talking about. But this occurred, I'm thinking probably about nineteen ninety-four or five. Got it somewhere along in that time period. And Cedar Hill was was a pretty hot act around Atlanta. And so we we frequently got asked to do opening act things. We opened for people at Center Stage, we opened for people at the Variety Playhouse, a number of places. Well, one day, we're at practice, and uh, Duck says, hey, uh, Steve called us, I forget his last name, Um, and he wants us to open at, and he mentioned the band, I didn't know who they were. I, it just didn't register who they were at all. I didn't know who Fish was. Never heard of him. But he just was talking about what we have to do. You know, it's on such, such a date. Uh, I'm like, well, I know how to get to Lakewood Amphitheater. Is that where it is? He's like, yeah, it's at Lakewood. Okay, well, I know where that is. You know, I was living down at Hapeville, which was only about three or four miles from there. I knew where it was. You go up Central Avenue uh, hang a left and, you know, I knew how to get there. I said, but when I go there, you know, where do I go? Cause that place is big. So I wrote down these little scribble down these little notes about what time we're supposed to be there. I'm supposed to go there and go to the ticket booth and tell them this and da da da. And at a certain time, you know, we're going to get there, haul in, set up, sound check, whatever, you know, Typical discussion before a gig. <clears throat> but again, it didn't concern me very much who we were opening for. For whatever reason, I d- it just did not register. And and if, if I knew the name of the band Fish, I didn't at that time know who they were. So the day arrives and, you know, we're getting paid like 300 bucks. It, it's just no one's opening at gigs where we, it, it's cool to have a, a, an audience that's primed and ready. They've paid money. They want to see some, some band, you know, play. And it's, it's an awesome uh, thing for a band that hasn't reached the top, but is somewhere, you know, regionally known or something like that. It's a, it's a great opportunity because the, the people are there to listen. Uh, you know, I'll talk about the whole opening act, you know, how to make a career as an opening act, but we certainly did a lot of it over the years. But anyway, this gig, the day approached, and so I throw my mandolin in the car or truck or whatever I was driving back then. And I just head up the road to Lakewood Amphitheater, which is probably now called something else. It was where they used to have the old, um, they used to have the uh, the fair. I don't know what they call I can't remember what they call it but there was a huge fair would come there every year and they had the old roller coaster that was all built out of wood I rode that thing as a kid that thing was terrifying and mostly because you thought it might collapse while you were on it I've been up there when I was a cub scout you know I it just I'd been to Lakewood many times but they built this gigantic amphitheater and you know these big national I mean huge acts would come there and play so it wasn't the kind of place we ever you know played but when when this call came in we're hey we're gonna open for so-and-so at Lakewood I'm like hey this is really cool this is gonna be fun so I show up and I mean just people everywhere and I go to where I'm supposed to go and you know get let in and you know there's a sound guy there and He's he's checking us, and we're run through a little bit of old home place or something, you know, to give him some levels and whatnot. And then it's you know hang around, and at you know when they tell you get up there and play. So we'd done this a bunch of times, you know. It was just, but I was looking out among that crowd. It was a just a massive crowd of like hippies and stuff, you know. It was a huge audience. But they were kind of like spread out and, you know, all the seats weren't filled yet, but there were people all over up on the grassy, on the grassy knoll. Uh, you know, there were people all over that place, but they were milling around. They were just like, waiting. Well, we finally get the the sign, go. And we start playing. we just doing our usual thing, you know, all of our cornball, bluegrass, humor and takes on (laughs) rock and roll tunes and i mean we probably like a typical set we probably opened with something like great balls no we wouldn't open with great balls fire that we'd end with that uh we used to do the song runaway so we'd start with runaway and then we'd go into this go into that and do i'm my own grandpa and you know dueling banjos and all this stuff so we're just going through our set i think we got about 45 minutes to do our thing and we're we're just on a on a tear and the crowd is digging it and there's probably i can't estimate crowds very good because as a bluegrasser you're used to estimating in hundreds not in thousands but i'm just telling you there were thousands there so anyway we're just doing our thing up there well we end a song and the guy that was running the sound on the stage some big old dude, he comes over to me during, in between songs, Jimmy is talking about, you know, the next tune we're going to do. There's, you know, there's people standing around the front, and it, but it's sort of thin, but spread out crowd. And the sound guy comes up to me, or somebody from the side of the stage, taps me on the shoulder and says, hey, is do you mind if Mike gets up and plays one with you? And I was like, I, I, I don't know, I don't know, ask him. And I point to our banjo player, who was sort of, you know, he was the guy that booked the gigs and everything. He, he wasn't really the boss because it was kind of a democratic band, but um, he was the contact guy. Everything, you know, would pass through him. I, and I didn't, Mike, you know, I'm thinking, Mike. It was like some guy in the audience brought his banjo or something. I I don't know. Ask ask him because I'm thinking you know we're being paid to do this and we were hired to be Cedar Hill. That I don't know, you know. I don't know if we should just have some guy out of the crowd get up with us. I don't know. And so I just all that went through my head in about four seconds and I said ask him. So when Jimmy quit talking and the and we cranked up the next song. I saw that same guy, like the sound dude, over there whispering and talking into Jimmy's ear. And he nodded yes. And this guy, this little short guy with curly hair comes out on stage, got a banjo slung around his neck. And he walks up there and he goes over and stands next to Jimmy, our banjo player. And they're, we're picking and, you know, and this dude, he gets up to the microphone, he starts playing on the mic He's okay. He's pretty, you know, he's all right banjo player. He's not the best I ever heard, but he, he was doing a fair job on whatever it was we were playing, Salt Creek or something. I don't know. But I noticed when he did that, I, I saw this surge, like a wave, like a tsunami of people just started pressing towards the stage. And people were, you could just see like trickles of people coming down rapidly toward a stage and it, and it, and they, they would build up at the front of the stage, almost like a dam of people and would back up and back up. And it was like all the people that are here are like coming toward the stage. I'm like, who is this guy? Now, frankly, and I'm just going to be perfectly honest. And Mike, if you're listening, which I doubt you are, but if you are, Duck, on that given day it was five times the banjo player. But nobody came, you know, rushing the stage when Duck kicked off Foggy Mountain Breakdown, but when this guy played it, all of a sudden the whole audience, I mean, the beach balls that were bouncing around through the audience just tumbled to the ground and rolled off in the bushes and every eyeball turned on that stage. I was like, "Whoa." And it dawned on me, this guy must be One of the guys that we're opening for, you know, and if you'd asked me right then who we were opening for, I don't think I could have, I didn't know the name. I couldn't have recalled it. I didn't know who. (laughs) It could have been the Grateful Dead for all I knew, you know, I, I don't know. I'm a bluegrass guy. I don't, you know, I don't follow these bands around, but anyway, as it turned out, it was the bass player from Fish and he played the banjo. But what I found out later was they sort of were um, enamored with bluegrass. And so they all kind of picked up bluegrass instruments. And I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But anyway, as this is going on and the crowd is surging toward the stage, I noticed to my left, another guy walks out, kind of a taller guy, kind of redheaded dude. He comes out, he's got a mandolin. Well, he comes over and stands next to me because I got a mandolin and you know, we're just playing and I took a break. He took a break and we're doing all this stuff and the crowd is going crazy. Like, wow. This is pretty cool. Let's do another one. And uh, whatever we did, I, I don't even remember the songs. So this went on for, for maybe three songs. And then they, you know, kind of took their bows and left. And I realized these guys are in this band, in this band, fish whatever that is. And uh, we finished up our set, and the crowd was really into it at that point. And we end with, you know, Mama Don't Allow and, and Great Balls of Fire was typically how we ended a set like that. When you got 45 minutes to do your thing, you pack all your best stuff into there. I mean, I'm talking show stoppers, you know, the drive them crazy, leave them wanting more kind of thing. We were really good at that kind of thing. So we finish, you know, and, you know, the crowd begins to kind of relax and disperse a little bit and it's in, it's now we've opened and they're going on. Well, there's a little bit of a lag time there. And so we, you know, we're just standing around waiting on them to come on and I swear to God, the band fish walks out on stage banjo, mandolin, guitar and bass and what's the first song they do old home place old home place and i'm i'm just watching this i have moved way on back i'm i'm at the very back of the auditorium at the top of the under the roof still but i'm standing up there looking down and I see this band. They're playing Old Home Place. Well, we played Old Home Place about 40 minutes ago, before before those two guys got up. We didn't get near the reaction that they did. And frankly, our version of Old Home Place was probably... Okay, I, it was better than theirs. You know, I'm just going to tell you, we've been doing Old Home Place for a long time. Ever since it was song Bluegrass Song of the Year in 1976 that's the year that our band started. Anyway, I'm watching this and I'm like, why don't people why don't forty thousand people come to see us play? You know? <laughs> They're doing the same thing we do. What are we doing? We we must be doing something wrong. Anyway, I, I stood around and watched them and they played I think probably three or four bluegrass tunes. I'm like, this is a bluegrass band? You mean to tell me a bluegrass band can draw 40,000 people to Lakewood Amphitheater? I'm like, this is nuts. I don't understand this. Well, I got to go. So I pack up and leave. And they had switched to their electric thing. And I, I realized that the mandolin player was really their guitar player. And the banjo player was really their bass player. And it converted and they started playing this stuff that, you know, I didn't, wasn't really my kind of music. And I slipped out of there, went back to my truck and drove home. That was the end of the story. I still didn't know exactly who we had opened for. I didn't find out till later that it was the band Fish. And, you know, if you're listening to this and you don't know who Fish is, then you're just like I was that day. If you do know who Fish is, you'd be like, what? You open for Fish? But just to show you how ignorant I was, not about bluegrass and not about a lot of other things, but I was certainly ignorant about that whole Grateful Dead slash transition to the Fish scene, that that whole thing. I didn't know anything about that. And I told my daughter, who was, I think, probably at the time, probably about, I don't know, sixteen, seventeen. She was in high school or, I don't know, junior high or something. I told her, yeah, hey, we, we played at Lakewood. Really? Yeah, we opened for fish. She's like, what? You opened for fish? I began to realize, well, dang. And I said, but yeah, you know, it only paid 300 bucks and we had to split it five ways. So, you know. And I don't even think we got any free food or anything. But anyway, it is fun to do that kind of thing, but I just thought I'd tell that little story because I mentioned it. I'm not sure what the point is, except maybe what an ignoramus I was about the wider musical thing. And you might be sitting there thinking, Oh man, what an idiot he is. And it it goes back to that thing what Mike Marshall said about you can you know, you can be wide or you can be deep. And at that time I was deep. I was mostly just Not so much deep into bluegrass. I was just deep into what our band was doing. And, you know, I didn't go to many concerts and stuff during that phase. Anyway, that's a story. I open for Fish. Fish gets up and plays with us, and I had no idea who they were. I thought there were some knuckleheads from the audience. Anyway, that's that tale. Hope you enjoyed it. One thing I want to say to all of you who have been listening to these shows all along, or you know, whether you've just listened to one or all of them, it's getting to be a, a lot. It's probably approaching 11 or 12 hours of stuff. And I, I made this joke, but my son said, you should, you should uh, sell this as a sleep aid. And I swear, last night, he was getting ready to go to bed, and today is the last day of school. They, they get only doing a half day. I don't know why they do half days. I mean, Come on, either whole day or half, you know, no day, no day or whole day. But what's this half day stuff? Anyway, so I'm recording this episode and going to pick him up on the, after the half a day at school on the last day of school. And he, the, today when I was driving him to school, he said, I'm a little bit sad. I said, why are you sad? He said, what's well, the last day of school? I said, well, think of it this way. It's the first day of summer vacation. Anyway, he was going to go to school and get the phone numbers of a couple of the kids that, you know, he hoped he could uh, hang around with, you know, get together and do stuff with this summer. Anyway, last night, he's half hour past bedtime and he's laying there in the bed. And I got the computer over here in the corner of the same room. And he said put on one of your podcasts. I said, which one, which one do you want to hear? He said, it really doesn't matter. Just put one on because it helps me go to sleep. So I picked out See the Elephant because I don't think he had listened to that one. And I just started it and I'm listening to it. I hadn't listened to it. I think I listened to it once right after it went up. I'm listening to See the Elephant go a little bit. And I glance over my shoulder. It hadn't been two minutes. He is sound asleep. So if my voice puts you to sleep, hey, you know, think of that as the benefit of this podcast. It makes a wonderful sleep aid. (laughs) Anyway, I forgot where I was going with this. Oh, yeah. yeah. All all of you who have gone to iTunes and give me the five-star ratings, thanks. Just keep clicking five stars. And I don't know how that helps, but I, I suspect it does help there. Were, I I thought it was funny. The very first review or the very few first, uh, rating I got was a four star. And I thought, eh, four pretty good. And ever since then, they've all been five stars. And I have to tell you, my feelings are hurt when I get a four star. I I only went the five star. <laughs> anyway, thanks for that. I, I don't know what it does. I suppose it pushes you up in the, uh, iTunes rankings and as I've said before maybe that'll bring some more good people into the bluegrass realm and I also want to say I hope you're enjoying this sort of transition to interviews with people had some pretty good ones here and and got some more good ones coming so stick around but but I'm going to intersperse it with just me rapping because that is how this thing started and if you know I still have a few things to talk about this little tale that I'm going to tell you, I'm not really sure what the moral of the story is, and I think sometimes the best stories are ones where it's where the moral of the story is not too obvious because it causes you to think about it. You have to decide for you what is the moral of this story for you, and I think, you know, a good story sometimes will mean one thing to one person something else to someone else based on your experiences so I'm just going to tell you my experience here and this goes back to something I talked about back um, probably in multiple episodes but in certainly in the earlier episodes where I was talking about how I got started and I got uh, I've mentioned that I got the banjo bug when my mother was working at the library and I would go hang around the library and I Found the Foxfire book and I built a banjo. But I want to dial back just a little bit before that. Because <clears throat> I had been exposed to a banjo just a little before that. And this could be months. It could be a year. I, yeah. Hey, you, when you get my age, some of this stuff starts running together. But I know it's before... I made the banjo before I built my own banjo out of total desperation. Right before that, this is the time period I'm talking about. I'm in high school. I'm probably in the 10th grade, something like that. So let me describe our family very quickly. You could say we were a very musical family. My mother played the piano and the organ. And she was the organist at her church as a child when she was 12 years old and probably because she had taken some piano lessons or something and they needed an organist. And they said, can you play this? And she said, yes, I'm just guessing she was no, you know, trained musician. She had just, she knew how to play it and she figured it out. So she was the church organist growing up as a child Well, many years later, when me and my brothers and sisters came along, Mom was always the church organist. And we moved around a good bit as a child, you know, up until about the seventh grade. We moved here and there, and everywhere we went, when we'd go to church, Mom was the organist. I don't ever remember how that happened, but it always, no matter where we were, it seemed like Mom was the organist she was always the organist. So as I get a little bit older, we would, um, you know, the church would have two church services every Sunday. Well, because mom was the organist, we had to go to both services because she had to be there the whole time. Plus she had to play the weddings and the funerals. And, you know, she prepared all this stuff and she was a very good organist. She also taught piano lessons at home during the week to like neighborhood kids and stuff who would come over and we had this junky old upright piano painted green, one of those what piano tuners call a mirror job. I won't get into all that, but Mom taught piano lessons. So we would go to church twice every Sunday. So I got double religion when I was a kid. But we were always told, Well in the early service, you got to sit downstairs with dad. So, you know, four kids lined up in a row with dad. And you had to sit in the in the pews and sing the stuff, do the liturgy and the whole thing. And then you went to Sunday school. And then after that would be the late service, the 11 o'clock service. Mom had to play that. But that one, we since we had gone to the early one, we didn't have to do the, we could sit in the balcony. Or you could go out and sit in a car if you wanted to just sit in a car. It didn't matter. My brother would usually choose that. And I would sit in the balcony. And, you know, this went on for years. I'm talking my whole childhood. I was one service downstairs with Dad, and the second service sitting in the balcony. Sometimes the choir would be there, so you'd have to sit on the floor or something down by the organ. And I remember spending many, 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 many Sundays sitting on the floor drawing cartoons in the, in the bulletin and mostly just watching my mother's feet playing the bass pedals on the, on the organ, you know, it was really interesting to get, you know, just watch the feet. And she, she had special shoes. She used to put on these, she carried in her little bag, little slipper type things that she wore when she played the organ. (laughs) <laughs> mom was a pretty amazing musician anyway so i got my my fill of all that and sang in the children's choir and all this kind of stuff but as we got old enough to get into band my brother got into band they started him in the seventh grade then he played the trombone i played the french horn uh, had two sisters that played flute and clarinet, and of course mom played. So it's like the whole family played. But there was one guy in the family, my dad. He didn't play anything. His family growing up, to my knowledge, didn't play any instruments. And my dad was a uh, you know standing in church singing the hymns and stuff. He was sort of a mumbler. You know, you could tell he was his lips were moving, but I never actually heard the man sing. He's one of those people that you'd say, you know, doesn't have a musical bone in his body. I just, but, you know, as a kid, you don't really notice this. You notice what's happening. You don't notice what's not happening. And dad, you know, he was, he was more likely to be, um, an usher at church, you know, taking up the collection. I remember he was the treasurer many times. He'd like count the money after the church service, you know? He was always very active in the church, but not musically. He didn't sing, didn't play any instruments. And we're just doing our thing. We're just a bunch of dumb kids. We don't, you know, we're just doing our thing. Well, okay. I'm going to try to keep this as short as possible. I think my father, you know, sort of felt left out. Because he didn't play any instruments or anything. And this is before... I really, that light bulb turned on for me about bluegrass. In fact, this may be what caused the light bulb to go on for me. I'm probably 15 or 16 years old. Well, on Sunday, after we'd get home from church, you know, everybody's just kind of in the house, doing their different things. And one Sunday, Pop turns on the TV and sits down in front of the TV... And he's flipping around the channels and he stops on channel eight and channel eight in Atlanta back during the, this is the early seventies was the public TV station. It came out of Athens, Georgia. Most, I think it was all produced over at the university of Georgia. He turns it on. There's this guy playing the banjo. Dad stops on that. And I'm in the room. I see this too. Well, it turns out it's this thirty minute television program. Comes on every Sunday, I think at three o'clock. It's called How to Play the Five String Banjo with Buddy Blackman. So we watched this first episode. I don't know if it was the first, could have been the second, could have been the third. I don't know, but we were it's a pretty early one, you because know, he's showing how to put the picks on and how to play a simple role. And then at the end of the show there's two or three guys there and they play a really fast tune. And it's like, whoa, that is cool. And this joker, Buddy Blackman, was a great banjo player. And it's interesting that many, many years later, like around 2010, I was in a band for a brief period of time, about three months, with Buddy Blackman's brother, a guy named David Blackman. Uh, which I'm going to get, I, I hope, I've asked him if he'll do it, to get David on sometime to do an interview David's a great guy. And I told this story to David one time before a gig. The same story that I'm telling you right now. How I came to know who his brother was. Buddy Blackman. Anyway, it was a show. And you got to remember, back in those days, there were no VCRs. So, if you watched the show and you didn't get it. You didn't get how to do Thumb Pinch or T-I-T-M. It's just gone. So, out of, you know... If a hundred things were told to you in the show, you might remember two of them. Well, anyway, my dad's watching this. And I think something, you know, he got the idea. Maybe everybody else plays something. Maybe maybe he could play the banjo. So a week goes by. Oh, and, and back to about, you know, how we didn't, there was no way to remember what was taught because you couldn't record it and you couldn't replay it. You couldn't pause like YouTube. Like if you buy one of my mandolin videos, you can watch it a thousand times if you need to. But back then it just, it aired live. Well, I'm sure it was videotaped, but when it was over, it was over. So they sold a book. And so you could write, you know, to this address on the screen, send in a check and get the book that went with the show. I don't think dad ever did that, but the next week, he comes home, he has bought himself a banjo from the Sears Roebuck catalog. Silvertone banjo. Got a case. He went down to the music store and bought a Mel Bay how to play the banjo book. He didn't order the book that went with the show. He had a book, with similar stuff, but wasn't teaching the exact same stuff you know I don't maybe he just didn't know that it would be better to get the book that matches the tv show so anyway next Sunday rolls around we get home from church and I see dad setting up in front of the tv he's got his banjo on his lap and I'm like this is really cool and I you know all of us kids wanted to check this banjo out and strummed it a little bit and I think mom helped him tune it she looked in the book because it had the piano notes. Anyway, he, he was pretty close in tune, I think. And the show came on and they played a tune and then Buddy starts talking and he's a great teacher, by the way. I think you might be able to find some of those episodes on YouTube. And if I can find them, I'll, I'll put put some examples on the show notes. Anyway, so Pop is going to learn to play some music. He's not going to be left out of this musical family. He's not going to be the only one that can't play. He's going to learn to play the banjo. So he he does for several weeks. When that thing comes on, he's got his banjo out. And I noticed him, you know, practicing for maybe... I didn't, he didn't practice a lot, but I, I can remember a few times during the week he would get it out and just plunk along, plunk, 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 and then put it back in the case. So... Couple weeks into this, I'm home from school one day, and I want to see that banjo. I'm gonna find that thing. So I go up, dig it around in Mom and Dad's bedroom, and go in the closet, and found it. That's where Pop, you know, kept his 22 rifle and stuff we weren't supposed to touch was way back in the back corner of the of the uh, closet. And there's that banjo case. I pulled it out, opened it up, and I thought, they're not going to be home for another hour. I'm going to get this thing out. So I get it out, get the picks, and the book, the Mel Bay book, I don't remember which one it was. might, I don't know, might have been that Sonny Osborne book. And I sit down and I start tinkering around with this thing a little bit. Oh, gotta watch the clock. Mom's gonna be home any time, or Dad. Somebody, put it back. Didn't say anything to anybody. My brother's in the basement. You know, his bedroom was in the basement. And he's got headphones on. He's probably listening to ZZ Top and Chicago records. My sisters are off in the neighborhood playing with their friends. I'm a. I'm in the house alone. I can. I can sneak that banjo out. And I. I suppose the moral of the story is. If you think your kids aren't digging around in your stuff, you're wrong. <laughs> because they are. And they're going to be very careful about putting everything back just so. Anyway, that's what I was doing. And I would do this day after day after day. I'd get that thing out and try to do that T-I-T-M. 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 And then I started trying that 2-3 slide. darn darn it darn working towards cripple creek by the way it's the same way i still teach people today if you buy my banjo instruction course it's pretty much that same stuff work for me (laughs) work for earl it probably worked for you anyway i was sneaking around practicing a little bit on this thing i wasn't any good i mean i was slow and you know I'd only been doing this for a few weeks, and then on Sunday, Dad would get the thing out, and I would just be quiet as a mouse, and I would watch the show, too, but I never let on that I was, you know, sneaking his banjo out, afraid he'd get mad at me. Well, a couple weeks goes by, and they're deep into Cripple Creek, and uh, I'm watching. Pop's over there, picking a little bit. (laughs) Well, the show finished. And I got up the nerve, and I Dad was over there still trying to play that 2-3 slide leg, T-I-T-M. He's trying to do that. And I got I got up the nerve to say, I believe I could do that. He looked at me. He said, okay, try it. Put on the picks, and I sit down. Now, he did not know that I had been practicing almost every day for three weeks or so. I set it down my lap. I went, and I'm paying attention to what I'm doing. He walks over to me, picks the banjo up out of my hand, walks out of the room. Didn't say a word. Didn't come out of his bedroom. I think I really hurt his feelings and at that. Well, let me tell you a little bit more first. Nothing was said, you know, at supper time, everybody was around a supper table and nothing was said about it. Next day. I uh, The next day was Monday because the show came on, on Sunday. I come home Monday from school, still thinking about this. Decide to go in there and get the banjo out. Sneak the banjo out of the closet again. I go in a closet. The banjo is gone. There is no banjo. Uh oh. Boy, I've done it now. Or maybe he's done it. I don't know. I don't know. I don't. I don't say anything. Next Sunday rolls around. Pop turns on a baseball game. Well, after a couple of weeks, I've, I'm i very, very curious what happened. And I finally got up the nerve and I said, Dad, whatever happened to your banjo? He said, I sold it. And, uh, The dead silence you hear right now is sort of the dead silence that was in my mind. Now, at that moment, I was a dumb kid. I I didn't understand. His smart-alecky kid (laughs) picks the thing up. Now, now, many years later, I'm thinking back on what he was thinking. He was trying to learn to play the darn thing. He was trying. He didn't know. That I was secretly practicing. He didn't think I'd ever even touched it. I mean. I Maybe strummed on it or something. But he thought he was practicing the banjo. He didn't think I was. And when I was handed the banjo. And I played. And basically the B part to Cripple Creek. I think in his mind. After all these years. When I think back on it. I think he thought. That I did it naturally with no practice because he didn't know I was practicing and I think at that moment I crushed his desire to ever I, I think I killed that belief that I've talked about you either have the belief or you don't he had the belief that he could possibly learn to play the banjo and then when he saw his snotty nosed kid pick up the banjo and do it with no practice and no effort and he was working hard to try to get it I think he just said, well, the heck with this. And and he took it to work and sold it to a guy at work. But I didn't realize this. At the time, I thought he did it to me out of spite. I thought it made him mad that I had showed him up a little bit. And the only difference between me and him, might not be the only difference, but the primary difference was that I'd pull it out and practice it for an hour a day, every day. And he didn't do that. He didn't have time. You know, he was working. He didn't have time for that. Given enough time, he would have made progress. But when he saw me do it and he thought it was just, I could do it as easy as I could breathe, which wasn't true, but I think that's what he thought. He just, that's it. He just resigned himself to being non-musical. He sold the banjo. And I don't think he ever really thought much more about it. But boy, I sure did. And that lit the fire. Because now I knew I could sort of do it. But I don't have a banjo. And that is what lit the fuse for me to make my own banjo from those plans in the Foxfire book. And I remember Dad looking at that banjo Dad was a pretty good woodworker. He could, he built all kind of furniture and sh- sets of bookshelves, and you know he was always tinkering around in the woodshop. And he saw that crude banjo, and I, I remember him looking at it, kind of like, "Yeah, that's pretty good," but I think the banjo was just a sore spot for him. And over the years, as I got more and more and more involved in bluegrass, I know his dad just kind of had a kind of standoffish. You know, he he didn't come out and see our shows that often and he just kind of wanted to stay away from it. I think it's because that sore spot that he had that his little wiseacre kid could pick up that banjo with no practice whatsoever and make him look like a complete moron, (laughs) which wasn't how it happened. But when my father died, my brother got up at the funeral and said a few words about pop and he made an observation that never occurred to me in all those years and he said you know dad was the least musical person in the family he he never listened he never I don't think he owned a record I don't think he ever bought a record unless he bought it for somebody else he never played an instrument and he was surrounded by a family that sang and played and did all this stuff But my brother made the wise observation and he said, you know, um, dad never played anything. He did have a, he did have a Ray Stevens cassette tape that he liked a lot. He loved those Ray Stevens songs. And in his later years, he, he used to come out to see Cedar Hill. And we used to do that song called it's me again, Margaret. And pop just loved that stuff. He loved the comedy. He didn't get into the music. But my brother made the wise observation that, you know, even though dad did not play an instrument, couldn't carry a tune in a bucket. Over the many years, he spent more money buying instruments, buying lessons. I mean, stuff like French horns and trombones on time payment plans. He gave us this by working, you know, his butt off at the newspaper or at the print shop. And you know, he never asked for anything in return. So I, I don't know what you draw from this, except that one, when you're when you're when you're young and inexperienced as I was at that time, you really don't understand these things. But later on I think it would be wise for all of us to just look around and say, who are the people in my life that helped me accomplish the things that I have accomplished and with very, very, very rarely do they ask for anything in return. That was my pop. So thanks pop. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed this, um, tale of what really lit the fuse for me on wanting to learn to play the banjo. And I hope that you will continue listening to the show. And as always go over there on iTunes and rate and review the show. And I want to make a mention of something that's on the – if you go to grasstalkradio.com, down at the very bottom I said there's a note on there about if you are in a bluegrass band and you've got some recorded music of your group, um, I I would like to sort of change up some of the intro and outro music and feature some people. So if you've got something that you own the rights to, I don't want to be paying royalties on – you know, 30 seconds of, of a tune. If you wrote a song and you guys recorded, got some original material and you want to spread it out to the audience here at Grass Talk Radio, just send me an email. Go to com. Go up to the contact button. Send me an email. Tell me what you got. I'll put your band on here and, uh, of course, mention you and put you in the show notes, link back to you. So if you got some music that you own the rights to and it's bluegrass get with me. Also, if you've got topics, if you've got things you'd like to hear me uh, give you my two cents worth for free, (laughs) I've said that before, Uh, something you want to hear me talk about or you want to get on here and talk, uh, just send me an email and let's talk. I think this is going to be fun. uh, Once again, I'm not sure I'll make it all the way to episode 500, but I have no plans to stop at this time. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Come back for the next one, and uh, don't forget to subscribe over on iTunes, or you can go with Podbean or wherever. Anyway, hang around—we got more fun stuff coming. Talk to you in the next episode.